good morning. If you turn over to Joshua chapter 4, one of the things I realize about my life as I get older, um, I don't remember things like I used to. Now, this is not a, an admission of some advancing disease in my life. It's just a reality. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we recognize that while people become dull in their thinking, there's certain phrases that are accompanied with that. Uh, phrases that are meant to poke and have fun. Uh, things like, uh, phrases like, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, two cards short of a full deck. Not the brightest crayon in the box. You begin to get the idea. There's a few more that I like. A few clowns short of a circus. A few fries short of a Happy Meal. One taco short of a combination plate. A few feathers short of a whole duck. A few sandwiches short of a picnic. A few pinatas short of a fiesta. And I, I particularly like this. I'm not totally sure. An intellect rivaled only by garden tools. I don't even know where that comes from. Mental agility of a used soap dish. So those are the ideas. One of the questions I would have, though, is, is, is what does God think about that? Meaning, what does God think of our, our memories? What does God think of what we do remember, how we remember? Does it matter to God that we do remember? I think it absolutely does. We have that experience of the grace of God that we're supposed to celebrate. We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to pass on. Some people take time to pass on plates, fine china, silverware to family members, heirlooms. What about the truth of who God is and what he's done in your life? I think that's much more more precious than a plate, don't you? So the question I would have this morning is that uh, we sometimes have spiritual amnesia. Sometimes we, we don't remember the things that are most important. And that's the title this morning, Curing Spiritual Amnesia. Because it matters to God. A matter of fact, you can't go very far in the Bible till you find this idea of the handing off of the truth of God from you to somebody else. You were never meant to be a wall in which the truth stops. You're always meant to be a, a tube through which the truth of who God is goes through you and passes to somebody else. You're not an end of the story. You're part of the story. But how do we remember things? How do we uh, take the time? How do we understand that to be? We've got to resist it. We've got to resist the tendency to uh, let the hurriedness of our day move us so fast through events in our life that we don't stop to see the grace of God, to celebrate the truth of God. The activity of God in your life. I think we can move so fast that there are things that are happening around us that if we don't slow down, we'll miss them. And they won't be handed off. I think that's one of the reasons why we have the Sabbath rest. In the Old Testament, it was a slow down. It was a distinctive of the culture of Israel pointing back to the God of creation. You ever wonder why in the law? There are things that they would do. You touch a dead body, everything stops. You go into a house and somebody's unclean. Uh-oh. I think God puts these things throughout the people of Israel to have them pause. 
and to consider what's going on in their life. To get a bigger picture of reality in the moment. And I think it's exactly what we need today. We have things like family pictures. We have things like movies. Matter of fact, my wife pulled out some pictures of our kids when they were young. And all of a sudden, I'm back in the moment. All of a sudden, I'm remembering moments that have long passed. You know, God does the same thing. In the passage that we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 4, God stops in the moment. And he says, this is really important for everybody to remember. So he intentionally, specifically, does some things so that the people of Israel would not forget. Because they're an awful lot like you and me. Their lives are fast-paced. You might say, well, how fast-paced could they have been 1,400 years ago? As fast as we perceive them today. We're in a different time, but we face the same problem. So this idea of curing spiritual amnesia is incredibly important. So the teaching truth, I'd like you to consider, write it down in the teaching guide. It's very important. Remembering the faithfulness of God in the past produces hope for the future. That's why this is so important. You see, if you just look out the windshield of your life, see the things that are coming at you, and you don't take time to look in your rearview mirror, You'll forget the faithfulness of God. You'll forget the moment you came to Christ and what that was like. You'll forget the time in which that person prayed, that it warmed your heart. You forget the moment in which your child noticed something about the clouds and remembered God. You'll forget that special time of reading the Bible where the truth just jumps off the page and hits you like a sledgehammer in a way it's never done before. If you don't somehow capture those moments... In the future, you'll need to think about his faithfulness. And if you don't, if you don't think about it in the moment, capture it, that hope in the future can be elusive. So there's three questions that we're going to use to explore the passage today. Uh, three questions. Let me just give them to you quickly. What they were to remember, the people of Israel in the passage, very important. How they were to remember, and that's the idea of how does God move them? What does he specifically do to, to jog their understanding in the moment so that they can remember their hope in the future? And then what would remembering produce? We're going to look at those things. But before we get into that, because we're going into the misty moments of the Old Testament, it seems like, we've got to know the backstory. We've got to know the backstory for the passage. It's very, very important because if we don't see the significance of this backstory, uh, there's going to be details and, and powerful points that we'll miss. The first point in the backstory, to get if you have a teaching guide, you can write this out. Uh, 1400 BC, Moses is dead. The people of Israel had been wandering in the wilderness. Now that doesn't mean they're, you're wandering every day. They'd been in the wilderness. Meaning the wandering is the idea that they're not home yet. Uh, sometimes we picture them just kind of roaming around like ants on an ant mound. That's not the way it was. The idea is that they're not yet home. Moses has passed away and the reason why they're in the wilderness is because they didn't believe God. They had every reason to believe God. He brought them out of Egypt. He fed them with manna, fed them with birds. I mean, he, he did everything's necessary. He provided the water. And they had this problem with believing, having faith. They, they longed for the, the gods of Egypt. 
So for 40 years, that generation died off. And now we're at a pivotal moment in which there's a transition. A transition from one leader to another. And that's the first point of the backstory. This transition of leadership. We don't think about it like this. We don't even think about kings that we sang about in the way that they would have thought about them. Because we have a presidency. It's a different culture. But when you're moving from one person, one leader who's been authorized by God in a dramatic way, bringing them out of the, but out of Egypt. There were even family members who questioned Moses and his leadership, if you remember the story. So we're in a precarious moment. Who is going to lead the people of Israel? And in a moment like this, when there's not a bloodline, when there's no dynasty, God specifically chooses Joshua. Because he needs to be very clear with who is going to be the one who's going to lead the people of Israel. Matter of fact, we see this with Samuel and David. After Saul is gone, Samuel specifically makes a point of pointing out that David is now the king. So in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, it confirms that Joshua is the divinely appointed leader for the people of Israel. Matter of fact... Uh, in Joshua 3, 7 and 8, the Lord says to Joshua, directly tells him, Today I will exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So behind the story of this is a transition of leadership. That's the first thing that's important to understand. Also, the role of a river. You and I don't think about it this way, but a river was known to be in a particular land under the governance of the regional god of the land. In other words, the rivers, the direction of the river, the level of the river, the ceasing of the river was known to be controlled in that culture by whatever deity was the predominant deity in the land. Uh, Richard Hess, who's the professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Denver, talks about the fact that Assyrian treaties at that time would actually put bake within their treaties that if someone that they were making an agreement with didn't live up to their end of the bargain, that their God would cut off the flow of the river from their land. So as the children of Israel are are approaching the Jordan River, understand they're going into a a different land, but now a land that God has said he has promised them. That's very, very important because the people had had not witnessed the parting of the Red Sea are now coming in. And if Joshua is the appointed leader, and this is a common understanding of God's ability to control the river, What will the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do when they have to cross the river? And it's important because at this time, uh, the river uh, was at flood stage. Matter of fact, this is the third point, the embedded clues of the event of the Jordan River. It's fascinating to me in Joshua 3, 14 through 17. There's a parenthetical thought in verse 15. And if you're there, look at that talks about the fact that they're bearing the ark and they come to the Jordan. The feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. And then parenthetically, the parentheses, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. In other words, 
the children of Israel show up in the most strategically unopportune time where the banks of the Jordan River would have overflowed. And historically, we have that they would go between 90 and 100 feet overflowed. Matter of fact, there was one commentator who talked about there were times in the in Israel that the Jordan would actually overflow its banks and it would be as much as one mile wide. They show up at this moment in which the river has escaped its banks. How in the world are they going to be able to cross from the land of the wilderness wanderings into the promised land that God has provided under this new leadership, recognizing the background of how the deities controlled the river. It's important for you to understand those three things today. Because in that very moment, God stops and goes, we're going to take a picture. We're going to remember this like a movie. We're going to take advantage of this moment because Israel... In order to go into the land, you need to have the hope that I'm going to be faithful. I've told you to go forward. Now we're going to do something that will live on in your life so that you'll have the hope that only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the earth, the God of the galaxy can give. So we find ourselves in that passage this morning in which we're going to walk through briskly. Joshua chapter 4, 1 through 7. And if you would follow along as I read. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. In that very moment, God says, I can't let the moment pass. Why? Because you need to remember who I am and what this day is about. Which brings us to our first question. What were they to remember? What specifically were they to remember? And as they are supposed to remember this, we're supposed to remember this. Whatever this is, they use stones, but the principle that underlines this is what they were to remember is the same thing we're supposed to remember. And the answer to that is that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Now, you might say, well, I'm here at church today, Dan. I'm, I'm getting that. Really? I would say that there are things that you struggled with. Oh, if we put the clock on and we had a conversation, I bet we can go about 24 hours. And there'd be things in which you, maybe subtly, were questioning the trustworthiness of God. Maybe your anxiety with your kids 
maybe that spouse, maybe your job. Whenever that anger spikes, whenever that depression gets close, all of these emotional flags are moments in which you hear a little voice. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I was on several flights over the last couple weeks. That little voice was in the back of my head when I sat in the seat. Crowded into this tube in which we're going to be going 35,000 feet in the air. Good gravy. I mean, the fire codes that we have on the ground are nothing like the fire codes that are in the, in the skies. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, this thing goes down. We're dead. Do you trust me? You're sitting there talking with somebody. I was talking with an individual. We started talking about the Lord. I don't trust God. Don't believe in God. Don't need God in my life. In that moment, do you trust me? Dan, do you trust me? It seems like this guy's like a stone. Do you believe that when you say something next, I'll use it. I'll advance the ball down the field in the life of this person. It, looking at it through the eyes of flesh, it seems like it's a hopeless cause. This guy's like a stone. Do you trust me? I think that's where we're at here. And God doesn't want to let the moment go by for them or for you. Because the God who tells them to take the stones from the middle of the river and bring them out, stones that will be obvious. These aren't like the other stones. These are rounded off. Where did these stones come from? People could say from the middle of the Jordan. People would say, well, there's no, what do you mean? These are huge stones. How can they come? Because God stopped the water. God is trustworthy. Now, when it comes to this, it's very important. This isn't just uh, an outlier, kind of a bolt onto the story. This idea of coming into the land and this promise, it was given all the way back into Genesis chapter 12. At the start of the story of the people of Israel, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is what God says to Abram before he's even renamed, before there's a covenant agreement. He says this, go from your country and your kindred." In your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before the event we just read about. God says, listen, I'm going to take you, Abram, and I'm going to bring you into a land. And that land wasn't Egypt. That land is the land that they're going into now. So the faithfulness of God in the past goes all the way back to the very inception of the Jewish people. It says in Genesis 15, 18, when the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, says to your offspring, I give this land. See, to us, land is property. To them, land is legacy. Land is a promise. You just don't go and take land As much as Israel can say, and they're the only ones who can, God gave us land because he owns it. And it shows his favor and his grace and that he's doing something in us that will have its final expression in the coming of the Messiah through us as a people. But in the moment, can God be trusted with giving us land? That's why he does this. He brings them into the land. They weren't trustworthy, but God has always been trustworthy. 
So he brings them into the land. You are trustworthy. Other things, as far as his trustworthiness, to provide leadership for the people. We've already talked about this, but they aren't supposed to be wandering. But the Joshua specifically provided. Jehovah leads. That's the idea in the name of Joshua. And as you look at it, you might say, well, we're not the people of Israel today, Dan, and we don't have a land. I've got a home. But you know what's interesting about this? If you look at the life of Christ, he goes out of his way to make sure that you know you're led. Even with the disciples, that the Holy Spirit's going to come and is going to lead. You follow me and he'll care for you. He'll direct you into all truth. Matter of fact, in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just as God showed the people of Israel that he is with them through their leadership. He has told you that he is with you. Now the question is this. Is he trustworthy? Do you believe he's trustworthy? Do you believe what Jesus Christ has said? When your child goes off the rails or when your job is not going really well, do you believe Jesus is with you? Because he said it. Now the question is, do you believe it? And that idea of his trustworthiness in the past gives us hope for the future. If we stop to remember it. The other thing I think he specifically is telling them with this moment, we've talked about it to create a place for them. Matter of fact, in Joshua 3.10, this idea of land, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you. And then he lists the various tribes. In other words, this moment of the stopping of the Jordan is so pronounced because they don't remember Egypt. They weren't part of that. But now this is a down payment that I'm trustworthy, I'm going to do this, and you can trust me in the future for something that seems crazy. Remember what's coming up next? Jericho. Jericho. Now, this is not easy for us to understand. Uh, Jericho would be um, not totally comparative, but it would be the idea of you going into New York City and you reaching them with the gospel. In other words, it would be a miracle, miraculous. It would be something that could not be explained other than God's work. Same thing with Jericho. Jericho was this fortress it was the passageway between the east to the west. Matter of fact, so much so that a Roman garrison had been placed there because it was so strategic. It was, an, it was a city that had been established. It had been walled up. And the idea is, in order to go forward, to go onward, this river is going to be stopped so that you'll know that the God who stops the river is the God that can conquer the people before you that are in the land. And now let's pause. Because there are those in our culture today would say, well, see, that's like colonialism. We go in and we take over and we take the, the native people out and they get up in arms and say, who is God to do this? Well, first of all, he's God. That's the first thing to remember. God does what is right and true. And so when he does it, it is right and true. Second of all, God takes a scalpel and cuts out the evil in the land. The Canaanites weren't nice people, and we've documented this before. Sacrificing kids to idols. There was brutality and sexual perversion that is off the Richter scale. 
So therefore, it's not innocent people gardening. These are people that are wicked. And God gives them this land, and he says, I'm trustworthy. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to clear out the people. How in the world can you do that? Jericho is huge. If I can stop the river, you can believe me to take care of the people of Jericho, to give you the city. I think there's another reminder of his trustworthiness here. It's a reminder to their children. The people of Israel had the tension of, how do I pass on what's been passed on to me to my kids? And he goes out of his way in verses 6 and 7. This may be a sign among when your children ask in time to come. What do these stones mean to you? In other words, these stones that they dig out from the middle of the Jordan as they're passing through are supposed to be a reminder. Be a reminder that how in the world could these stones come from the middle? Well, let me tell you about the event. The Lord shut up the river. Matter of fact, in the description of shutting up the river, it wasn't just shutting up the river in the middle of it, but it was way upstream, which we'll talk about in a moment. But as kids come along, don't you want to hand off the truth? Certainly you can say that God did this, but man, when you have stones that are there, that are obviously from the middle of the river, your kids can go, wow, God is powerful. God is great. So that the idea of the, the faithfulness of God in the present gives us hope for the future that doesn't just stop with you, with your kids. So I've got to ask at this point, parents, how are you nurturing this in the lives of your kids? Real quick question. Do your kids know how you came to know Christ? You would think that's a layup, wouldn't you? You would just think, that's got to be obvious. I've met parents who've never told their kids. Who've never talked about the struggles. They've never talked about the relational struggles they had. Maybe the struggles even with drinking, maybe drugs. And, and, well-meaning parents think that I don't want to tell my kids that because it'll give them ideas, right? Uh, your kids have ideas already. Don't worry about that. Let me just take that one off the list. My kids know things I did. I don't give them all the gory, blow-by-blow details. They know enough. It's important. Because they need to see the faithfulness of God in my life so they have hope for their life. I think that's what these stones are talking about. And God in his kindness and his infinite grace and wisdom stops in this moment, says, take the stones out of the middle, put them on the side. They look different than all the other stones. To the pagan nation, it looks like a pile of rocks. But to you, it indicates the faithfulness of God. I think there's another reason why for this, is remembering, is to send a message to the nations. As we talked about the fact that... Um, Whatever happens with the river wakes up the neighbors. In verses 23 and 24 of Joshua, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters and you will uh, for you until you passed over, as for your God did to the Red Sea. Oh, that's, we remember that. Nations remember that. Long time ago, over 40 years, we heard stories about this. Same group of people, they're at the Jordan. And all of a sudden the river stops up. Wait a minute. Their God is powerful. And it says in verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Wow. You see, remembering just doesn't stop with your kids. Remembering is like this uh, bullhorn 
to families and friends and neighbors. Matter of fact, in Joshua 5, 1, as soon as all the king of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, in other words, that's the direction Israel's going, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, that's a little further than they were going, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit within them because of the people of Israel. It's like, God, I'm coming. That's the first question, that idea of what they were to remember. I think those four particular things. Now, hurriedly, on to how were they to remember? How were they to remember? And we've, we've, we've ricocheted off this already. This is nothing new, but it's important to linger here. The presence of the 12 stones. The presence of the 12 stones representing individually the tribes of Israel, God's covenant keeping Israel. But this presence is supposed to tell them something. And this is not terribly unusual. Matter of fact, we know from Genesis 28, Jacob used the stones of Bethel to mark the presence of God. We know from Exodus 24, Moses used stones to make God's work solidify at Mount Sinai to build an altar there. Matter of fact, uh, 142 different independent sites in Israel in which there were stones that have been found by archaeologists that either mark a significant burial place or a place in which some divine presence or worship took place. But what is interesting about this, fascinating about this, and distinct about what happens in our passage today, is this isn't a memorial stone in which God did something locally right here and the God stays there. If you remember the story, when do the rivers start to back up? When do they start to stop? In this passage specifically, when they passed on, and it says in verse 5 and 7, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel may be a sign among you. In verse 15 of chapter 3, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, that's when the water stopped. Now, you might say, I don't get it, Dan. All the pagan beliefs of that day would set up stones or an altar or some type of remembrance because the God of that particular area. But this, God traveled with the people, represented in the Ark of the Covenant. So when the priest's waters entered into the Jordan, the Jordan stopped. And in the passage, it tells us that the waters stopped all the way up to a city called Adam in the north. 16 miles north. Wow. You know what that means? Everybody in the neighborhood is being told. Matter of fact, statistically, if you measure the amount of water in the Jordan, 29% of the water in the Jordan Valley was stopped. At what? The presence of the feet of the priests who bared the ark. Not an ark... Not the stones weren't doing it. The ark was. And the ark went with the people of God. In other words, God wasn't the God of one location. He was the God of a people. And he went with the people. No one else, no one else believed this. 
No one had a God that traveled with them. No one had a God that was among them. These gods were these transcendent gods that were far and distant and they'd have to cut themselves to get their attention. The people of Israel had a God who was with them, that had condescended to be with them. Do you know what this means for you? That this God cares for you. His trustworthiness is not so that he can get his kicks like an egomaniac. His trustworthiness is that you go, he is with me today. He is with me in my kitchen. He's with me in the traffic. He's with me at the office. Because that's what he was with the people of Israel back then. And the, the priest's feet touching the water and the water backs all the way up. It was not only is he with us, he wants everybody to know he's with us. This presence of those 12 stones are to remind them, not of the the moment simply in that land, in that location, because then we'd all have to trek there, wouldn't we? We'd all have to make a pilgrimage. No. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's chosen, it says in the book of Revelation, to tabernacle among us. As the tabernacle moved, the ark was there, and tabernacle moves, he moves with you. You serve a God that is incredible. That he condescends to meet you where you're at. To go with you during the day. Transcends belief. This is totally different. He wants them to remember that he's Jehovah, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes before us. The presence of the 12 stones for them was to remind them. But now I've got to ask you. We don't have stones. But we have pictures. We have movies. We have things that we can remember the working of God. Write those things down. Journal. Don't let them escape. Tell the stories that need to be told. But we don't look to stones. We look at Christ. We no longer pile these things up to remember his presence. We look at a cross lifted up. The resurrection of Christ that makes him able to have defeated death so that he goes with you so that you'll defeat death. We have a gracious God. So this remembering the faithfulness of God in the past produces hope for the future. Third point as we finish our time, what would remembering produce? What would remembering produce? In the life of the people of Israel, and I think in your life, I think it's very similar. Different context, different time, different trigger for remembering the stones of God's presence when we have his spirit for his presence. I think there's three things. I think the first thing is identity. We are the people of the living God. Just let that marinate. We are the people of the living God. People that stand on the outside say that's arrogant. Wait a minute, I think everybody is the people of the living God. I think all roads lead to heaven. I think all roads get to the top of the mountain, right? That's not true. If you're with me, Jesus said, then you're true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very, very clear. And yet you have people of other belief systems. No, no, we think we we get to the Father too. That's not true. So this morning, if you're here and you're thinking good works get you across the finish line, uh, you're wrong. I said this to the other, other day to a guy on the plane, and he, he was saying that. He was saying, I think I'm, I'm good enough. And I said, you know what that makes Christ look like? That makes him look like a liar. 
You just called Jesus a liar. When he, when you say that you can get to God on your own through your efforts, you're calling Christ a liar. No one had ever told him that. I said, I don't think I'm calling a liar. I said, it's inescapable. And you're under the wrath of God for that. If one of, a person I knew called one of my kids a liar, it's a human. I mean, I'm Papa Bear. Call my kid a liar? Imagine the God of the universe. If you think you can make it without Christ, you're wrong. And you're not of the people of God. It doesn't matter what you might think or the emotions that you might have. But if you have trusted in Christ, his righteousness is your righteousness. You believe that he died for your sins and he rose from the grave to defeat death, to bring you into relationship. You placed your trust in that. You follow Christ. You're a believer. You are, as an identified person, you are following the living God. That's incredible. Just like the people of Israel. They're the only people, and that was a sign that they were trusting. Second thing is solidarity. I think solidarity. This idea that we've been chosen on this mission together. The people of Israel wasn't just individually, it was also as a group of people. And the same with you. The same with us. You're part of the church of the living God. You're part of this particular expression. But you have brothers and sisters that are around the globe. Notice that your unity with them is based on your identifying with Christ. You have differences, understandable. Distinctions, understandable. But you have a bond with them. So hear me gently. When you find a Christian who believes something in a way that you might not necessarily do, and it's not a doctrinal thing, it's not something about the character of God or the character of Christ or the gospel of Christ, it's just different. Be careful how much stress you put on that relationship. God is doing a work in them like he's doing a work in you. Not everybody has arrived like you. Give some space for that. Give some space. We'll give you some space. This solidarity, I think, is important. I think the world has shrunk so much because of social media. Just because you can say something doesn't mean you should say something. You know? I've met people like that. Because they can't say something, they do say something. You know, there's that saying, if you can't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Some people need to put that on a plaque right before they leave their house. Or maybe by their keyboard. Be mindful of that. I think the solidarity, there are a lot of different people at different places at the river by the Jordan. Just like there's a lot of people, but we have a solidarity in the gospel. Third thing is, I think, a mission. We're going to have a mission. Just as his people had a mission to take the land, we know that ultimately the land from Hebrews chapter 4 represents the fact that, that God is giving us something greater. He gives us a provision that's much greater than simply land today. Matter of fact, when we look at the, the writing of Peter, where he talks about the fact that he rose from the dead and that he has given us an inheritance that is greater than the land, that is imperishable because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't look to a land, we look to a place. We look to a heaven in which our God sits. And so we transfer the hope that we have in God for tomorrow into our lives today. And we're on a mission 
to introduce other people to this, people that are far away from Christ, to introduce to them who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and urge them to turn from the wrath that is to come. We're on a mission to make disciples. So I'd have to ask you this question, not so much the land we're going into, but let's say the territory of other people in your life. Are you giving them the gospel? Are you sharing them with the truth, the trustworthiness of who God is so that they can enter into this hope that you've entered into? You're called to make disciples. When's the last time you shared the gospel? Our God is great and glorious. Why are you holding this truth to yourself? Don't do it. Think about right now. Who's that person? One, two, three people, co-worker, neighbor. I get that you're not going to articulate the way you'd like to, but express the hope that you have in God. Tell them your story of how you trusted. Simple as this. Hey, I've known you for a while and something's been on my mind. I'd love to tell you just something that's very dear to me that I heard this weekend when I was at church that was important. And I'd, I'd like to know if I can tell you a little bit about my story with Christ. And then just tell them. Thank them. Thank you for letting me share that with you. That's really important to me and I, I consider you a friend. Just do that. You don't have to be Cicero. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul shooting it out in the Areopagus. It's not you. Just tell them your story. As the band is coming up, I think there's uh, leads us into those takeaways. Why does your story matter when it comes to remembering the faithfulness of God? Your story matters because it's the only one you've got. It's like a diamond. Uh, there's no other one like your story. It's the grace of God that's washed onto the shore of your life. Tell your story. Remember your story. Write down your story. Share your story with other people. Lost people, found people. When you tell somebody else how you've trusted in Christ, maybe initially or how you're trusting in Christ this past week, guess what happens? It's like looking into a kaleidoscope. All of a sudden you see all these different colors moving and we start sharing what God is doing and all of a sudden we see the grace of God in all these majestic ways. I learn about God through your story. You learn about God through my story. The way his grace is broke on the shore of my life is meant to fill the wind in the sails of your life. Very important. Second thing is, how does God's faithfulness to Israel inspire you to trust Jesus today? God moves heaven and earth. God softs up the rivers. They trusted him. You can trust him. Even for that thing that gnaws at you that you don't know if you can. Meditate on that because that's the same God that we follow. But now we see what is in shadow form, mystic, God. Now we see in the face of Christ. And there can be nothing more glorious than Christ on the cross and resurrected. Third thing, how can you capture the moments of God working in your life as we've said? Pictures, journals, write down, share, talk with people. Document it in some way so that the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids who come can read about it. It's very, very important because remembering the faithfulness of God in the past produces a hope for the future. We have it written in his word, but we also want to see it in our lives. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we know that we might be dull in our thinking, but we need to take actions to be sharp in our remembrance. You did. You took the time to chronicle these things in your word. Because remembering the past gives us hope for the future. And just as we see in this moment, we recognize although our lives are not scripture, our lives are moments in which your grace is seen. And so give us insight. How can we do this? In pictures, and in documentation, journaling. But most of all, help us to express it to one another. And as we see your faithfulness in the lives of one another, we start believing your faithfulness more for ourselves. Help us with that. We're weak people. We are forgetful people. But you are not. You remember us. You do a work in us. You've provided all the grace necessary for all of the struggles in this auditorium. And we thank you for that. Help us to be broken and humble in remembering the goodness of our God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.